Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey guys, it's Mom Taraj, the podcast about being a mom that thinks that most mom stuff is super boring. So we created our own posse. I'm Ashley. And I'm Carrie. And we are ready to walk you down the red carpet of motherhood. Hi, everybody. Hey there. If you can't tell, Carrie's not feeling well, but we're still going to have a great show. That's right. First up today, we're talking to Dr. Bibi Parayash, who's the founder of One of One Educational Therapy, where she believes every child is unique, intelligent, and motivated. And by celebrating differences, not deficits, she's helped hundreds of students over the last 10 years unblock their barriers. She's not the only person that thinks all kids are amazing and special. We do, too. Do we? I think everybody special and amazing. Yes, you're right. My vocals are really terrible on this episode. So sorry that it's not up to par. But you know, we can't win them all. That's okay. And I was the one that messed it up, so I apologize to everybody. Then we're going to talk about this article from Jezebel called Let's Talk About All the 40-something Male Celebrities Dating Women in Their 20s Right Now. Listen, not groundbreaking, but really fun content. So I think we're going to have a really good show for you guys. Ashley and I are not groundbreaking people. We like giving our opinions, I guess. As always, we have our hashtag swag bag and up next, take it away, small child. Kicking shit. First of all, I would like to dedicate this episode to Cecil Gray Bazelon, who was, I mean, I called her my great aunt, but really she was Lee's mom's cousin. So my mother-in-law cousin? I don't know what the thing is, but I actually was extremely, extremely close to her. In some ways closer to her than I was to my mother-in-law. She lived in New York. I saw her a lot and she passed away, which is why we took last week off because it hit me pretty hard. I just want to tell you a little bit about her if that's okay, because she's going to be my tits. Yeah. When I was younger, I've told you guys this, they used to ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I said, I want my obituary in the New York Times and I want to be eccentric, but I spelled it E-G-G, like eccentric. And in my mind, what I imagined was like fabulous leopard print, red lipstick, living an independent woman lifestyle in New York City as an artist, just freaking being fabulous and looking fabulous and kicking ass and taking names. Is that a breakfast burrito, Ashley? Uh-uh. Oh my God. During your tribute, just eating a breakfast burrito. I was like, Cecil Bazelon and I crunch. <laughs> anyway, when I met Lee, I very quickly met Cecil. And the minute I met her, I was like, oh my gosh, it was like I manifested her. She was direct. She told you exactly how she felt, even if you didn't ask. But she also started it with one hell of a compliment. So you didn't mind when she was like, Carrie, darling, your skin is so great. I love you. Does anyone like that outfit? I was like, I guess not. She was fabulous. And she lived life exactly the way she wanted to. She got a master's degree in painting in the 40s as a woman on full scholarship. That never happens. She lived in the Bowery by herself in the 50s and 60s. She was smoking a lot of weed with a lot of cool people. She was like Maisel. She got married late in life, never had any kids, married this man. She was his third wife. She was not happy about that. But they were madly in love for the 35 years that they were together before he died. He died before her. She was like the land of misfit toys. One, she always hung out with younger people. All young people loved her. She had a very young quality. 
She was like 97, 98. I can't remember now, but she did gyrotonics every day of her life. She was so physically fit, always had her nails done, had two different leopard prints in her living room, custom designed her own wallpaper that her friend made. She adopted people that were misfits and she just collected them. And her whole life was full of loving and being generous. Her legacy is full of all these people that were like, I didn't have a mom and Cecil became my mom. Cecil found me in college when I was studying to be a female lesbian rabbi, like all these amazing things. And the female lesbian rabbi that did her service told a story, and this is like Cecil to a T, that when Cecil first moved to New York from Cleveland, she was like, it's Yom Kippur, I should probably go to service. So she goes to Temple Emmanuel. That's the temple I go to in the city. Yeah, fancy temple in the city. She walks in and they go, do you have a ticket? And she goes, no. And they go, well, then you have to go to the basement and listen to it over a loudspeaker. And she was like, Cecil Gray does not listen to a service in the basement. And she left and never went back to temple (laughs) again. But anyway, I really love her. Her art is all over our house. And we've had a lot of deaths in the last couple of years. Yeah. My mother-in-law, Lee's mom, Cecil, two of my grandmothers, my friend who was my age who died of a brain tumor. It's just been a lot. And COVID, some of those people never had funerals. Some of those people I couldn't see in the end of their life because of COVID. And one, I think it all hit me really hard. But also Cecil represented to me what was possible. And truly until COVID, she lived her life in such high dignity. And it just showed me what was possible when you get older. All these other people, they just were different than me as they got older, more passive. And she was just exactly who she was the whole entire time. And unfortunately, the isolation of COVID, she was such a social beast and such a physical out there person. COVID really took a toll and she didn't die of COVID, but the isolation really affected her. And I don't want to say I have any shits because life is full of shits at the moment, but the tits were Cecil. She never had children. She wanted them and she was not able to have them. And she painted every day of her life. She only has one unfinished painting and that's the one she was working on when she died and it was a self-portrait. And she said her paintings were her children. And one of the last things I whispered in her ear, I said, I, don't worry, I have nine of your children. I have the largest amount of your children and I promise I will take care of them and continue her legacy. That's so nice. It just makes me happy that I just see her beauty and what she represents to me all over my house. So here's to the strong women out there and know that even as you get older, you can still live life exactly the way you want to. Well, I don't think I'm going to follow up with anything. I think we'll just leave it with that. All right. All right. Next up, Dr. Bibi Parayesh. Today's guest is the founder of One of One Educational Therapy, where she believes every child is unique, intelligent, and motivated, and that by celebrating differences, not deficits, she has helped hundreds of students over the last 10 years unblock the barriers to their learning so their brain can begin to do what it was designed to do, learn efficiently. Welcome, Dr. Bibi Parayesh. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for coming. So let's start off easy. Can you give us a rundown of what exactly One of One does and how you've gone down this path? We're primarily an educational therapy organization. We essentially provide services to kids who have learning differences, learning disabilities, and a lot of our work is focused on the remediation of learning disabilities. I personally, because of the turn in my own path, I'm also doing a lot of advocacy work uh, around children's learning rights. But I came to this work very much from a science background. I was a neuroscience education major in undergrad. I was a 
developmental psych, sort of cognitive science person, I was always very much interested in learning and understanding how learning happens in the brain and how that research can inform classroom teaching. I really came to learning disability almost by accident. It's not something that I personally have experience with or even knew anyone growing up with a learning disability. But I fell into it because I wanted to understand this connection between research and practice. And once I started working with kids with different kinds of learning needs, that's when I saw that connection really happen. And so I was in private practice for years and years, loving and enjoying the privilege of that one-on-one connection that you can build with kids and the changes and differences that you can see in real time. Then after a while, I started to realize that all of this was really only available to children whose parents had the resources to afford these kinds of services. And for all of our talk about connecting research and practice and everything, this stuff really just never made it into actual public schools. So that really shifted my direction in a way. And I went back to school specifically to study education and social justice and try to understand our systems better and why things are the way they are. And I wish that it was, you know, some kind of happy ending, but actually it was quite the opposite. I learned how all of this is, I really hate to say it, but essentially by design. And so that's a huge part of what I do now at One of One Kids is really trying to push back on the types of narratives that we have around learning disability, the ableist narratives that we have around it, and to try to remediate systems more than children. I've done some work with that Winston Transitions School. It's one of those schools that's a transition from high school to college. It's like a two-year program, and it teaches kids with different disabilities and prepares them to go off to college and really be able to handle what is expected normally of kids in college in that being self-sufficient, being able to handle the curriculum. I was just making a commercial for them. But before I had worked on this job, I had no idea that places like this even existed. And just being there for two days, I was completely blown away how wonderful that there are situations like that. So I guess my question is, how does educational therapy differ from tutoring? Well, let me just say one quick thing about what you just mentioned. There is a lot available that people don't know about. Sometimes when we're talking about disabilities that are more visible, I think that people seek things out, but learning disabilities, primarily invisible. There's a range in severity. So some kids whose learning disabilities just completely stop all of their functioning. And then there are a lot of people who somehow figure out how to function, even though they're dealing with a learning disability. And a lot of people, even today, have learning disabilities that are undiagnosed. So they just think of it as like, this is just how I am. And so when you don't have the diagnosis, it's that much harder, obviously, to seek out places and services because you don't even know you need it. Absolutely. And unfortunately, we don't have any kind of systems in place that screen everybody to make sure. I think that this conversation around the difference between tutoring and educational therapy is connected to this question of diagnosis. Because a lot of times when When kids don't do well in school, our first thought is, oh, we need to get them a tutor. And what a tutor does is essentially what a teacher does, which is to teach content. I know that you recently had the Secretary of Education on your podcast, which I thought was incredible. Thank you. He was talking about the money that the federal government has now put aside.
provide for the COVID learning loss and everything and the importance of that one-on-one. And so they're now trying to hire a lot of tutors to teach that missing content. And that's really important. However, kids with learning disabilities aren't just missing content. It's the actual learning part. It's the processing skills that are not in place. Hiring a tutor essentially just becomes a crutch. Unfortunately, because educational therapy is not as well known and understood, it oftentimes gets replaced by tutoring. And so kids are just using a crutch throughout their academic careers. What are some signs that we should look for in our kids that might indicate that some additional support, care, education, tutoring, what are some signs that we might need to up the ante? The most important thing is always your gut feeling. I don't think there's anything that we can trust more than a parent's gut feeling about what's going on. And one of the really terrible things that happens is when parents know something is off and they go to the school and unfortunately the school system is oftentimes not trained or because of money and all of that, they don't want to go down that path. And so the school says, oh, it's developmental. Everyone learns to read in their own time. They'll figure it out. That just ends up making the problem worse. So always listen to your gut feeling, push for things. You have rights in the school. So even if they say no, that doesn't mean that you accept that no. If you put a request in writing, they're required by law to test your child within 60 days. But I think the two biggest things, one is if generally speaking, homework is a nightmare. I think that's a really good sign that there's something going on because especially in our country where we give homework, but not to the extent of a lot of other countries, it should not be that difficult. And if it is, that's always a good sign. And the other one is apathy. When a child is just like, I don't really care about school. We're learning machines. So outside of social issues that might be going on, generally speaking, apathy is a sign that something is off. And then of course, if you're noticing reading language issues, reading disabilities, they're the one kind of disability that we really do know how to remediate. And it's an absolute shame. I know very recently in in New York, your mayor made it mandatory for every child to get a dyslexia screening, which I think is huge. A simple screening can give you some flags for further testing when necessary. So what tips do you have for parents in regards to how they can best support their children who may be having any kind of learning disability or they're noticing things? Like, what are your tips for parents on how to best help their kids? This is where the divide essentially begins. I think that if you are a parent who has the resources, I hate to say it, but I really do recommend getting private help, outside help, both in terms of testing and diagnosis and in terms of resources. So whether you're contacting a neuropsychologist to do a full battery of testing, I only recommend that if it's really necessary. I think we have a problem right now where everyone's getting a neuropsych and it's unnecessary. But the reason that I really think if you can afford a private consult to maybe not do it exclusively, but certainly do it additionally is because oftentimes when you go to the school, the response is we're going to either put them through the SST process and take a year and a half to get to where we need to be, or they just say, no, everything is fine and they'll just catch up. Try to get that extra help from the right person because there's also a lot of misdiagnosis. I can't tell you how many 
neuropsych reports I've read that are terrible, where the diagnosis is wrong. Private doesn't mean that they're going to do it right. You still have to do a lot of research. If you don't have that resource, if you're not able to do that, then I would recommend going through the school system, doing everything in writing. If you're able to hire an advocate, or sometimes people offer these types of services for free, get someone on your side, because it is essentially the second that you enter into it with the school system, it becomes a legal issue. You don't necessarily need a lawyer, but you do need somebody else on your side because most parents don't know the law. They don't know what their rights are. And having someone there who does will be a huge help. Dr. Beebe, thank you so much for joining us. This was very enlightening for me. Can you please plug yourself? So oneofonekids.org and or LinkedIn. I do normally plug the Difference Is Not Deficit Project, which is an initiative that we started to get people who've had experiences of having their learning disability pushed back on through the system to share their stories. But if I may, and I don't know if this is okay, and if it's not okay, you can cut it out of the show. Okay. I am an Iranian American. And with everything that is going going in Iran right now. The only thing that I want to plug right now is if people are on social media and they are seeing the Masa Amini hashtag, it's a very complex issue. But two teenage girls this week, just in the last two days, have died really, really horrific deaths at the hands of this regime and in this revolution. So I just want to say to any listener out there, if you know of Persian people, if you connect with them on social media, please amplify their voices. This is a crucially, crucially important time. So that's the only plug I wanted to do. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. The work you do is so important. Thank you very, very much. Let's talk about this article from Jezebel. The paper of record. I didn't even think Jezebel existed anymore. I thought it went away when Gawker went away. I mean, I did always enjoy Jezebel. I read it religiously. I just had no idea it still existed. I didn't know either. So yay to that. And I loved it for this kind of narrative, which I just think is so fun. It was always where you went for like, what happened on Gossip Girl last night? And like, fun celebrity gossip. So this came out January 14th, this article. And it basically is talking about all of a sudden, I mean, listen, older men dating younger women is not anything new. Ella's oldest time. Exactly. There were a bunch of trending couples. So first we have Chris Evans, who's 41. Finally, if you pay attention to Dumois in any way, he has been rumored to be with Alba Baptista for at least a year, I would say. But they finally went public. She's 25. Anyone who's a Bachelor fan will know Nick Vile, who is 40 has been part of Bachelor for so long, just got engaged to his 24-year-old girlfriend, Natalie Joy. I mean, at least all of these are legal. And it does address that. We're not talking about legality here or consent. This is all consensual. This is all legal. It is just a commentary about age. That's it. Then, of course, we have Leonardo DiCaprio with a 23-year-old, which honestly, that's a bit old for him. I also think that's all bearding. Oh, 100%. And soon-to-be 60-year-old Brad Pitt, which, by the way, that made me feel really old that Brad Pitt is 60. Buzz Aldrin, who who's like 97, just got remarried to somebody. That's absolutely disgusting for her. I would not even want to know about those old 90-something-year-old balls in any world. He has seen things. He's been to the moon, maybe. Yeah, but he's got a really old dick. I don't care where you've been. I don't want your 90-something-year-old penis. Brad Pitt is 59, and he is getting more serious with his 30-year-old, who I believe is lying. She looks older than 30. I don't mean that to be disparaging, but... 
We all know in Hollywood, people lie. So this became popular because when Austin Butler won, what award did he win? Golden Globes. Golden Globes. Okay, so the Golden Globes happened. Austin Butler for the Elvis film has been doing all this press where he keeps talking about his friend, his friend, this friend that told him he should play Elvis, this friend that encouraged him. It's Vanessa Hudgens, his girlfriend he was with for 10 years, who is his age because she has also told the same story and everyone knows they've been together for 10 years. But now he's dating Kaya Gerber, who is Cindy Crawford's daughter, who is... 21. He's 31. I don't think that's that big of a difference, but 21 to 31, that's a different phases of your life. I can't really talk because I've always dated way older men, like 10 to 15 years older and at 21. So I am this person, but go on. I'm not. And I don't mean that as a judgment thing. I did date a 26 year old at 21. And I remember thinking, oh my God, he's so mature and so much older. And he wasn't. We've already said that I have like lots of daddy issues. Right, right. And then on top of it, we have people like Florence Pugh who dated Zach Braff. She's 27, he's 47. 20 years. Also, Zach Braff, what is attractive about that guy? I don't understand at all. You know what he looks like to me? What? Someone you're like, he'll be cute when he gets his braces off and then he gets his braces off and there's no change. That is a really good comparison, (laughs) actually. I want to stress, this is not about me tooing anybody. These are of age women. For me, the thing is, what in the hell are you guys talking about in your relationship? What are you guys doing? What do you have in common other than having sex? Because Chris Evans says all him and his girlfriend do is prank each other, which, I mean, that's appropriate for a 40-something-year-old man and a 20-something-year-old girl. Also, the fact that he feels comfortable saying that out loud and doesn't realize that that's maybe not something you want to share out loud. Right. And then the article brings up, we idolize almost 60-year-old Brad Pitt. That's crazy. He looks great. He really does. Looks great. But he reportedly physically abused Angelina Jolie and their kids on an airplane. It's been investigated and I think currently being investigated by the FBI. And yet he's still adored by all of Hollywood. He's still seen as so sexy and wow, he looks great for 60. I said it myself and I truly believe it. I mean, I just said it. I agree. He does look great. And yet we have Olivia Wilde, who's 38, dates Harry Styles, who's 10 years younger than her. And you and I have said it ourselves. Like, you're making a fool of yourself dancing around like that at his concert. Have some self-respect. And I still stand by that statement, honestly. But what is wrong with us? What is wrong with society? You know, the Golden Globes. Yes. They sat Brad Pitt right in the front. He was the biggest hit of the night. Other than Jennifer Coolidge, he was the one everyone would be like, oh my God, Brad Pitt's right there. Countless women said that when they were up on that stage. And they say that's a huge PR thing. He has his PR team working on overdrive to completely forget that this abuse thing ever happened. And it's working. And why are we so forgiving of men? Well, it goes back to what you said a couple episodes ago. Why is Coach Shaw not getting the heat? And it's because he's a man. That's why. And I can't even get into all of that. Let's talk about Leonardo DiCaprio. Okay, let's do it. Let's talk about it. We know his manager was one of those real perv managers who really took advantage of little boys. And was part of the, what's his name? Toby Maguire. Part of that whole really unfortunate situation there. I mean, it's all unfortunate. Like, who am I kidding? Did you ever listen to that Beyond the Blinds episode about Leonardo DiCaprio and all these different women have come forward and said that he has to have sex with, with earphones headphones on, on yeah. blasting like MGMT, a cigarette in his mouth, and sunglasses on. At least he knows what gets him off. I think the problem is he's probably been really, really abused and nothing really gets him off and he has to, like, 
like go to some other place. It's very sad. Horrendously sad. This is all alleged, guys. This is not factual. But then we glorify him for his Jack Nicholson lifestyle. I mean, are we still glorifying him for that or no? I don't know. I think men, not all men, but I think there's a number of men out there that think that's pretty cool. It's like a joke. I mean, it's not a funny joke. It's not a ha-ha joke. But his dating has been like the butt of jokes yeah. for so long. And I think most people are like, that's sad, but also like, get over yourself. You and I recently did an interview on the 101 podcast, which I don't think has aired yet. I can't wait for it to air. They were so great to talk to. So great. So wonderful. And one of the things we talked about was that this article came out, I believe, in either Variety or Hollywood Reporter saying that although the Me Too movement kicked off all of this stuff in our industry, in Hollywood, in entertainment, really not a lot has changed. If I remember correctly, the article said there was one studio that was hiring female directors and the female directors were the only ones that were really taking the time to be more inclusive of women, be more inclusive of BIPOC people in the industry and hiring those people. A lot of it was just for show. Of course. And it's so interesting to me to hear people who are so anti-wool culture. It's a very conservative mentality. The truth is not a lot's changing. We are making this big stink about these things. And I do see it in certain ways. I'll be honest, I see it with Matt. There are jobs that Matt is more qualified for than other people, and he gets passed over because he's not a woman or he's a white man. There's jobs you and I get passed over for white women. Yes, of course. I'm not even white. I'm a Hispanic Jewish woman. But because I'm white passing, I get passed over for them. It's confusing. Is this change actually happening? Because I feel it. Or is it not happening because we're not fully seeing it? I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Please. And I'm going to tell you all the reasons why I have always for the most part, dated older men. Okay. When I was 21, I dated a 40-year-old. And that relationship lasted. Huh. The only reason really why we broke up was because he really wanted a family right away and a little woman that would stay at home. And I was just starting my career. And I was like, I don't want that right now, but I do want that. I think it might be hard for you to answer this because it's hard to see ourselves through this lens. But one of the things I see on TikTok a lot are these older men talking about why they prefer younger women. And without you this exact word, essentially, it's because they can manipulate and shape these women into exactly what they want them to be. The end reason why I broke up with him was because he wanted me to give up working and live a certain way, and I did it. Now, he had not dated someone younger until me. He ended up right after me marrying someone even younger than I was. Weren't you 21? How was she younger? Yeah, but our relationship lasted until I was like 26. Oh, okay. Got it. We dated for a very long time. It was very serious. He was college friends with a guy that owned the theater company that I worked for. So that's when I met him and we started dating. And it was a really good relationship. My parents loved him, but he really wanted me to not work and stay at home and have kids and everything. My career was just taking off. I was like, I don't want to do that. Right. And then he would say things like, you're very child. And I was like, right, because I'm 22. And also, I'm exactly the same way in many ways that I will. I'm like, I'm going to tell poop and fart jokes to the end of time. It has nothing to do with me being 21. Have you met my grandmother? Right. He one time got out of a moving car because I was singing, when you're sliding into third and you feel just to turn down real. And he got out of the car. He's like, I can't. See, but I do feel like this. Obviously, what do I know? I was not part of this relationship. But just hearing it, it does kind of support what I was saying. I continue to date. 
date guys. I mean, Lee's 10 years older than me. You and Lee now, you're at a different age now. You're not a 20-something-year-old girl dating a 50-year-old guy. You're in your 40s. You are a well-established woman. I don't mean to be critical of you. No, it's okay. So please don't take it this way because it's not of you. It's of this guy. I think there's something to be said about older men when they are with younger women wanting somebody who hasn't been through it emotionally or physically or in any way, right? So they can set a precedence. There's shit I tolerated at 21 years old that I would not tolerate now as a 37-year-old woman. And I'm sure we all feel that way. I'm sure there are men that feel that way. I think the thing that I wanted to say as a woman in this situation was that I liked that he had his shit together. I never liked going to a dude's house and him having like a bed on the floor and one top sheet that he tucked in and like crumbs everywhere. This is a man that owned his brownstone, had nice soap. I remember walking in, I'm like, this is nice soap. He cooked food for me. He woke me every morning with a cup of fresh coffee while I was sleeping. This was a man. This was a man and he had his shit together. And being a starving artist in my 20s moving to New York, I mean, sometimes I look back and I'm like, man, he treated me amazing. I was like his goddess. So there's something really attractive about that that made me not even think about the age because I had never been treated like that before. I had never been treated so well. My 26-year-old boyfriend when I was 20, I remember one time he said, how come you never pay when we go out? And I said, because I'm in college and you have a full-time job. You work all day long. That would make me want to dump him immediately. Yes, I am going to college, have an internship, and I work at Lucky Brand making $8 an hour three days a week. I have bills to pay. Literally, I was just working all the time. I was either at school, at my internship, or at my Lucky Brand job. There was no blowout. There was nothing. I was just a girl trying to get through life. And he was just convinced I was using him for his money. And I remember then saying, what money? (laughs) What money? You're not rich. You just have like a job and I'm a college kid. Yeah. You occasionally bring cookies over to my apartment (laughs) and take me out for a drink. What fucking money? You're not buying me jewelry. You stupid asshole. I'm now just going to say to anyone, you're not buying me jewelry, you stupid asshole. Yeah, you're not buying me jewelry. Like, what the fuck? What money? Also, let's look at this reverse. Let's look at the Hulu show. The show with Tate Eggs. Back to the groove. Oh, right, right, right. I also dated a very much younger man once. Yeah, see, I'm just not interested in that. Like, what the fuck do I have to talk about with a man that's so much younger than me? I was like, listen, you're too young. It's not into it. Fine, fine, fine. You warm me down. I'll go out for a drink. He was fun. He was a b-boy hip-hop dancer. Oh, my God. I don't want to be doing acrobatics. It was a little acrobatic. I don't want that. I just want vanilla sex. He was the one that wanted me to think about having an open relationship. Of course he did. There's definitely a part of me that would feel very judged by people for dating a younger guy. But aside from that, that is not what would stop me. I mean, I understand giving it a try and stuff. I just like want someone I can talk to. Maybe if Matt and I got divorced and I just was looking for somebody to have some hot sex with, maybe that's a different story. We did do a lot of of yoga together. Oh, God. This guy just gets worse and worse. <laughs> it's just such a midlife crisis. That's okay. You do you. I'm just saying. It's like flavor of love. I can't take you nowhere. You pooped on my floor. <laughs> anyway, what do you guys think? What do you think about men dating younger women, women dating younger men? Really, I'm more interested in the men dating younger women, but I, you know, I'd be interested to hear how you feel too. Men dating younger women is like so predictable. It's so predictable. But also, like, what about when you go through menopause? What about Samantha and what was the guy's name when she had cancer and he was so good to her? 
Yeah, that's fictional characters, Carrie. I'm talking about real shit. You're telling me that Demi Moore was perimenopausal with Ashton Kutcher and had him around her young daughters? Well, he cheated on her all the time and she was so horribly abused. She was dealing with a dry vagina. She was dealing with hot. She was dealing with all this shit. That's the least of her issues. If you read her autobiography, oh my God, it's terrible. Fine, take any other woman then. Make it not Demi Moore. Going through menopause. And you're going to deal with that with a 20-something-year-old man? He has no concept. My husband who loves me and adores me barely has patience for me when I'm in a mood sometimes. And some 20-year-old guy is going to when I'm going through years of it? Not a chance. Lee and I are both like, thank God we're both old because shit is just breaking and we can laugh at it. 100%. I want somebody to grow old with me. I'm like, Lee, you have saggy balls and my vagina just doesn't work. Yeah. I think I want to have to put estrogen shit on my vagina to go have sex with a 25-year-old because he's hot. I'm good. That's a hard pass for me. (laughs) I'm not even at that point in my life, but I don't want to be there with a young guy. Let us know. Let us know your thoughts. We want to hear them. Hashtag swag bag. Vinyl stickers. They're bringing me joy. Me too. I just bought a bunch. I just got one. I can't wait for it to come because we've talked about before on my computer right now, I have that showbiz baby and a thing that's just stick of butter and it just says butter. And I bought an inhaler that says it's not easy being wheezy. <laughs> and then here on my water, I've got cherry bomb and that shit is bananas. You and I have very different sticker tastes. I do have one that's an apple that says Sonia Morgan's home for wayward it girls. <laughs> and I felt like that was very appropriate. It's a great way to spend $2 and just give yourself a little smile. I agree. Although I did pay like $5 for a Ramona one. Anyway, my hashtag swag bag is going to be the brand favorite daughter, which I kind of hate supporting. I've never heard of them. It's David Foster's daughter's clothing company, Aaron Foster and something else. They kind of annoy the shit out of me. They give me very strong Jenny Mullen vibes. Like those kinds of girls, those LA chicks that just think they're so funny and everyone needs to be privy to their funniness when it's just not that funny. But they have a clothing company called Favorite Daughter, which I do think is a very good name. I've been looking for the perfect black high-waisted wide leg pant. So I was obsessed with getting theirs and it was sold out everywhere. I didn't end up getting them, but I found a pair of jeans on their website. These pants are rated the top pant. Like they're $218. Everybody wants these fucking pants. They're sold out everywhere, everywhere. But then I found these jeans and I bought them and I'm in love with them. And now I'm just convinced that they probably make all kinds of great clothes and there's so much cute stuff on their website and I'm just going to buy so much of it. I've never heard of them. I've bought a few really good pieces in January that have been either on sale or because I've done such cleaning out of my closet things to replenish or fit me right or whatever. And those jeans are one of them. Did you get them online or what did you do? Yeah. The Misha. Super high rise wide leg jeans. They're like a sailor jean. I love a sailor jean. I miss a trouser jean with the slanted pockets. Oh, I love that. They have a regular jean pocket, but they are a trouser fit jean and I love them. Not to mention these are a whole size too big. So I had to go down, which is even nicer. Vanity sizing. I just also want to say that I bought a pair of Gucci boots. I bought them at a designer resale place. They look brand new. What place, 
by the way? It's in Short Hills. It's called Double Take Vintage. It's mostly a lot of very labely, printed labely kind of stuff. Got it. So not a ton of stuff that I would buy, but I found these leather in the front, suede in the back, old style Gucci triangle-ish logo on the side, probably four and a half, five inch heels. I think they're five inches and there's no platforms. My calves are like, oh, you need an Advil. They are so hot. I want to walk across the grave of someone I dislike in these boots. I want to meet an ex-boyfriend's new wife. I want to go to a reunion of people that made fun of me in these boots. Like, I just love these boots so hard. They represent the woman that I know that I am in my heart and soul and my mind. They're probably like $3,000 boots. I got them for $350. Can't beat that. Nope. Whenever I'm feeling down, I just want to put them on and look at myself and be like, this is you. You can do it. You can do it. Just look at yourself. Here's for getting older and just buying shit that is nice. (laughs) I mean, I gotta tell you, there is real joy about getting some really nice pieces that you spend money on and make you feel your best. All right, everyone have a great week. We love you. Stay safe, guys. And stay healthy, Carrie. And grow old the way you want to, like a baddie, badass bitch. Yes, agreed. Bye. Bye. Okay, that's our show today, folks. Thank you so much for giving us a listen. Please do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe or follow. We are out here on our own, and these things really, really matter. We want to hear from you. Tell us what you want to hear. Email us at hello at momtouragepodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok, all at Momtourage Podcast to hang out with us all week long. We are here for you. You are not alone. We got you. So go ahead, girl. Know this posse is behind you and go slay. Momtourage is a Cafe Mom podcast written and produced by Ashley Heron-Smith and Carrie Sotero. Recorded and mixed by Lee Mars. Our theme song, MILF, is by the band Mama Drama. You can find them on Instagram at Mama Drama Band or MamaDramaBand.com. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.